say there are things better left unsolved. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no man's land? Tromiga Grammel is the name of the song from the album Los Chicharrones del Surf. The name of the band is Balu and De Surf Grammel, and this song appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. This is episode 253 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show all about classic monsters, modern talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton. I'm happy to have you here because we are getting into a bona fide classic. Sometimes we go outside the classic label. We talk about some of these movies that, you know, sometimes might not have the highest production value. They might be a little cheesy here and there. Maybe the female characters aren't drawn very well. In this movie that we're talking about this week on the show, however, it is hands down one of the best movies that we've ever talked about here on Monster Kid Radio. I'm talking about 1951's The Thing from Another World. To talk about the movie, I've got my friend, Chris McMillan, from the website The Shadow over Portland joining me. There's a particular reason for that. If you didn't already read it in the show notes, you're going to find out when we begin our discussion with Chris in earnest. And you know what? I'm eager to just get to it. So let's get into that discussion, which does include some spoilers, right after this. Out of the air and from under the sea, these weird zombies from Mars swarm in to annihilate the Earth. What? What are you? I am Marlix, a native of the planet Mars. Perhaps not quite a human being by Earthly standards. The orbit of our planet Mars is so far from the sun that climatic and atmospheric conditions there are much inferior to those on Earth. We can construct an H-bomb which, when detonated at the correct time and position will alter the rotation of a planet enough to change its orbit to any extent we desire. You propose to move Mars into the same orbit as the Earth? Exactly. Their diabolical scheme seems sure of success until Larry Martin is called upon. And so, Larry Martin, we direct you to use all means at your command to rid the Earth of these horrible zombies. We are informed that another of their rockets is now approaching Earth. Is there time to intercept it with your rocket? No, at the rate that ship is traveling, it'll be out of radar range before we can get off the ground. Unless it lands. Then ground defense will handle it, Bob. Unless Mr. Steele thinks we can help. Yes, Larry, I do. It is the duty of my department to handle all matters menacing world security. And you're one of my executives. I realize that your work has usually been in the interplanetary zone. In this case, I think you ought to take charge, both on land and in the air. Very well. There he is. On target, steady as she goes. Firing ray gun. The public brings you weird adventure in 12 explosive, suspense-filled episodes. of the stratosphere. Hey, comic book fans. I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. She is Erin Gray. Erin, welcome to the show. I ended up being a contract player making, I think it was $600 a week. Gil was doing great. He was making the big bucks. You got the posters, though. You got <laughs> yes. the posters. Come I on. look better in white spandex. What can I say? Hey, this is Michael Rosenbaum. Lex Luthor from Smallville. Make sure you listen to this guy's show. Sounds like a good guy. People should listen to you, Joe. Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. 
Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, and be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is Dean Kane, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book... Comic Book... Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior. Nightfall, monstrous animals crawl out of crater of volcano. Great herds of cattle stampede before this living inferno. Vast area devastated by appalling new horror. A creature named the Black Scorpion by panic-stricken people of San Lorenzo. Entire population prays for deliverance. For miles around, cowboys came upon one dead steer after another. One of them had heard the tale of the demon bull of the Maricopa. Having lost family or friends, something absolutely unknown, we could be in another world. Nation's leaders confer as news received a possible threat to capital. This is a city of four million people. If word of these leaks out, the panic of the population could be worse than the scorpions. The black scorpion destroys communications. Hundreds annihilated. achieved before by any science fiction picture. Thousands in the cast. Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions, astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other. We can only communicate with it. What happened, Doc? In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olsen scream. Come here. Get in the corner. Now hold this in front of you. Stay by the light switch. 1.9. Needles hit the top. your Geiger counters, ladies and gentlemen. That's all I got. We've got Chris McMillan on the show. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, Derek. How are you? I was waiting for more. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. So, man, it's been a while since we've had you on this show. Uh, first appearance on Monster Kid Radio in 2016. How's the new year treating you so far? Uh, it's It's okay. Okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's too early to tell in the year. Some good things, some bad things, but evening out. How's that? <laughs> you know, you say that, but I feel like January is just zipped by. I know. It has gone really quick. Which just gets us closer to Halloween, so that's fine. No, that works for me. That works for me really well. As long as it slows down in October, I'm good. Yeah, October can take forever to get through. That's right. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> oh, hey, let me congratulate you on 250-plus episodes of Monster Kid Radio. Congratulations. 
Thank you, sir. Thank you. And, you know, without you, it wouldn't be here. And I don't just say that because you're on the line and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be nice. Listeners, if you haven't listened to it, episode number one featured this guy right here. Chris McMillan was the first Monster Kid Radio guest when we did a live recording at a local convention and talked about our top three favorite monster movies. Mm -hmm. And way back then, he mentioned the movie we're talking about this time around on the show. I don't know why it took us 250 plus episodes to get to it. But I knew that if we were going to talk about the thing from another world, you had to be involved. Well, and I appreciate that because that, that still is my number two right now. The list hasn't changed. I was I couldn't remember where it was. I, I know what our number ones are, which is why we get along so well. Of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it, it's number two. It You know, it sometimes gets close to dethroning the creature, but just can't quite do whoa. it. Whoa. Close. Whoa, 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 strong words, sir. Well, it's a great movie. It really is. You know, I mean, it's it's one of those movies where it, this is a classic. It's a flat-out classic film. I know sometimes on the show we cover some of the not-so-classic yes. movies. I mean, that's part of the tagline. It's part of the thing we do. This one, though, I, yeah, definitely. A bonafide classic. It's iconic. It's important for a number of reasons. It's filled with amazing performances. I think the direction is great. The screenplay is solid. Oh, the screenplay is wonderful. And even though James Arness himself wasn't a big fan of how the monster looked, I think the monster looks pretty cool. They did it right by hiding it with shadows and stuff. No close-ups. Yes. No close-ups of the face. You see more detail of the face in the cover art and the poster. Yeah, and, and you know, there are publicity pictures, but you really don't ever see the creature, which works well for this. Sure. No, it makes him more mysterious, more... Menacing. Yeah. Yeah, there's a scare factor there that you sometimes don't get with 1950s monster movies. Mm -hmm. Not that we're complaining about those movies either. We like them. But, I mean, when you can see the seams, it kind of takes the edge off. This one, the edge is there. Oh, it's... It's so, so good. Yeah. It's one of those movies that you can honestly watch over and over again really easy. You know, that said, I haven't watched it in a couple of years. <laughs> I hadn't watched it in about a year myself, so it was nice to go, hey, you know, I gotta break up my copy of the thing. In fact, I haven't watched it since I launched the show, even though you said you loved it so much in episode one, and I kept thinking, you know, I should go back and revisit it. I haven't even watched it since. Ooh, wow. It's been a while. Oh, it has been quite a while, and I'm so glad that we revisited it, because I had forgotten just how much I enjoy this movie. And no wonder it influences people like John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. You've got, uh, you know, I mean, Howard Hawks basically is the driving force on this. So you know you've got a, a very sharp script, well-written. The dialogue is just rapid-fire pace at times. You know, it reminds you of some of his earlier movies, just the way the characters talk. It's a very natural way of speaking and speaking over each other, mm -hmm. which would be terrible for podcasting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but for a film, it makes them feel more real, more grounded, and the relationships become a little bit more solid and apparent. Mm -hmm. And it also allows for certain character traits to come through real well towards the end of the film where there's rigging up the trap for it. Oh, I love that scene. That whole sequence is great. Yeah, because you've got, you know, the scientists saying, hey, we could do this. And one of the um, army people going, yeah, if we do that. And the commander's just kind of looking at it going, um, um, yeah, you guys go do that. I'm going to go over here. You've got that under control. There's, there's that flow where the two guys are talking and figuring it all out and everybody else just kind of lets them go. It just felt like that's what would happen. And it also showed this scene in particular, and you see it a lot at the very beginning as well, that these guys, like I said, I, they feel more real to me. The relationships feel more real because when you're friends with somebody for a long time, if you're in a relationship, how often do you start completing each other's sentences? Oh, you know, yeah. how often do you, I don't want to say jump on or interrupt what your friend or your partner or whatever is saying, but you know what they're going to say. So you can go and go to the next point. And it's not an offensive cutting you off kind of thing. It just is how the conversation goes. Mm -hmm. And that happens in this film quite a bit. And I can imagine, I've never seen it, but I would love to see a copy of the screenplay because I imagine it's one thick screenplay because there is so much rapid fire dialogue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that whole bit, everybody seems to know what they're doing. 
you, you get a sense of relationship with the characters. You know, you know the pilot and those guys have been with you know working with each other for quite a while because they're just comfortable with each other. The scientists. This is one of those few '50s movies where the scientists really sound like scientists. Yeah, you know, they're not just running around in a lab with a coat on, going, "See, I'm a scientist. I even have glasses." <laughs> they they talk the way a scientist would. There's the scene where Kenneth Toby is asking how they figured out how far away the spaceship crash was. And this one scientist goes, well, that's real easy and starts spewing out science. But it sounds good. And Toby's like, uh, that's over my head, I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's actually close to what he actually says in the movie. He's like, uh, I, I, okay, whatever sort of thing. But they sound like they know what they're doing. Well, it's because he had glasses. He really, you know, oh, paid well, attention yeah, okay. to me. You know, hey, I wear glasses. Does that mean I should know more science than? Hmm. Well, do you have a lab coat? I, I well, Ooh. <laughs> you know, I, I have in the past. I wonder if I still have. I wonder if it fits. Not, I'm not volunteering myself to go science against the thing or whatever. Oh, okay. I'm just saying. Okay, there's one thing I have to ask you. Yes. As someone who has set themselves on fire for cinema. <laughs> What do you think of the burn sequence? It's the first time they did a full body burn on camera, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's considered the first full body burn. Yeah. And um, Tom Steele, I think it was, was the stuntman who did it. Okay. And and if you look at his IMDb page, I mean, he's got like over 250 stunt credits. Oh, wow. Yeah, everything from like uh, the Towering Inferno to Zombies of the Stratosphere. <laughs> you know? Nice. Um, he was in the Blues Brothers. He was in a bunch of stuff. He was in a Star Trek episode as a stunt person. He was around you know he did wow. stuff but what but yeah like i said i mean that's that was an impressive burn i thought i'm trying to imagine what it would be like having seen it for the first time not having seen a full body burn like that before mm -hmm. that had to have been something well you know and not only do they set him on fire they're throwing more gas on him yeah i mean it's not just oh we ignited it we threw the gas we ignited everything he's burning now Let's let him go. No, they're throwing more gas on him. Just let it go. I thought it was pretty impressive. Yeah, and what was really impressive is the guy was breathing, I guess, pure oxygen out of a tank while he was on fire. Wow. Yeah. You know how flammable pure oxygen is, right? Yeah, that would be uh, kind of scary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just, But, you know, I mean, I know that John Carpenter did one up with flamethrowers in his remake of the thing, but I still think the burn in the original is just amazing. It looks better than when I set myself on fire. <laughs> My own fire scene lasted what? <laughs> like a second or two? <laughs> yeah. I was watching the burn and I just went, I have to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of these days I'm going to find that old videotape, put it on YouTube or something. Oh God, that would be Awesome. I've got to find it. I've got to find it. I was a much younger, much skinnier, much dumber Jared <laughs> back then. <laughs> this film, The Thing from Another World, when was the first time you saw it? First time I saw it was back in the 70s. This was one of those films that KPTV would play on a regular basis back when um, Channel 12 was independently owned. Okay. Um, so every year it would come up on a Sunday night at 5 o'clock. It was one of their standards you know traditional movies but it was also one that they put on the big sunday night movie it wasn't something they put on in the afternoon because it was you know just kind of a kitty monster film this was actually considered a big deal although i never saw the entire film until what was it uh, the 90s when i recorded it yeah because i had cable at that time and it's like oh the thing i'd love a copy without commercials <laughs> set up okay. the vcr and I didn't realize they actually had cut that movie when they were broadcasting it on television. Oh, okay. I mean, I'm sure it was done a little bit for time because, you know, they wanted to, they wanted to get as many commercials in as they could. But it was really surprising to me when, um, Nikki and Captain Henry are walking away, uh, talking about trying to, reconcile his rather boorish behavior the last time they were out and he says well maybe you can tie my hands behind my back and she says that might be a good idea and then all of a sudden he's tied in a chair with his hands tied behind his back and i was like <laughs> what where was that scene right <laughs> you know that one took me by surprise i didn't realize they could get away with that in a 1950s movie did you see carpenter's the thing first or did you see this oh one i saw first? this one first okay really okay yeah. See, it was the other way around for me. Ah. 
Zach Carpenter thing first, and then I went back and saw this one on VHS. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while we're talking here, I'm looking at the credit list. Just as an aside, there are a number of people in this movie who are uncredited because they're just in the background. You know, they might have a line or two, that sort of thing. There are a lot of people in this, a lot more people than are in Carpenter's thing. Oh, yeah. One of the uncredited actors is a guy by the name of Bill Neff. Bill Neff passed away in 99, mm-hmm. but I knew him, and I didn't realize he was in this. Otherwise, I probably would have attended his classes more. He was a teacher at the film school I went to. Oh, really? Man, I wish I had known that. Wow. That's cool. I, I knew that he had done some acting back in the day, but I had no idea. Apparently, he was also uncredited in The Day the Earth Stood Still. If I had known, I think my relationship with him would have been a lot different. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, he, he and I didn't really get along very well but um wow oh interesting what huh hmm anyway yeah cool that's kind of cool although it would have been even more cool if margaret sheridan was a teacher of mine because i probably would have paid a lot more attention in class um yeah but probably the wrong sort of attention let's be (laughs) honest margaret sheridan wow yeah you like her oh yeah her character you know and, and and this is kind of a nice little setup for for something her character is actually as far as i'm concerned one of the strongest female characters that you'll come across in a 1950s horror film or monster film or what whatever film you know i agree i agree with you 100% well even more so yeah because if you look if you watch her interacting with all the army guys they're just rapid fire dialogue nobody talks down to her there's Two times she's doing the stereotypical 50s thing, you know, coming in, anybody want any coffee? And it's like, no, but you can come in, you know, because it's like, we like having you here. You're fun to talk to type thing. During the coffee scene, I never got the impression it was because she's a woman. I just got the impression that that's her job. Yeah. And it just, it just is. Yes. She's basically Dr. Carrington's secretary, but you get the sense that she knows what he's talking about. The science doesn't baffle her you know she's got a sense as to what's going on you know Mm -hmm. she's smart she's strong they treat her like an equal she's the one who figures out how to kill the thing Mm -hmm. you know and and while she doesn't get to do any sort of you know heroic battling with it you know she doesn't get involved in the battles she's there she doesn't scream she doesn't pass out they leave that to Scotty at the end, but you know, she's, <laughs> she's pretty strong and I really appreciate her character. But then of course, you know, it's Howard Hawks film. You know, he's always done strong female characters or for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really taken by her. I, I knew that she was a strong woman. I, you and I have talked about it quite a bit, but like I said, I hadn't watched the movie in quite some time. So mm-hmm. I was almost taken aback by just how forceful she is and not just in terms of being one of the guys but she's also one of the girls i mean she takes charge of her own sexuality with some of the lines that she drops oh yeah there's a moment between her and kenneth toby's character uh captain hendry mm-hmm. he tries to send her away because you know it's too dangerous whatever well if i go back who's going to put out my fire when it gets too hot well um I don't know if that line went too fast through this by the censors because it's such rapid fire dialogue, but it kind of implies something a little bit more than we're going to go fight a monster. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, when we meet her, they're talking about the night they had, the one night stand they had, mm-hmm. without saying it was a one night stand. But it's pretty, pretty implied. It's pretty implied. And through the entire conversation, Nikki is the one who remembers it all. Nikki's the one who is the dominant in that interaction because Captain Henry doesn't remember. He drank way too much that night. Yep. It didn't bother Nikki. In fact, she took charge of remembering it for him. Mm-hmm. And it's really refreshing. And really played a nasty prank on him. We don't know what the note said, but no, we don't. And and you know that sequence is really interesting because Henry comes at her and she kind of backs up and sits down in her chair and says, "Wait mm-hmm. a minute." It's like this reversal. She's physically she's acting like, "Oh gosh, oh gosh, I'm in trouble now. I'm in trouble now." But she's still in charge. Of that whole scene, mm-hmm. she just she sits down and goes, "Wait a minute," and stops him right there, and then just laces into him pretty much for being, you know, kind of a <laughs> kind of grabby. Turned into an octopus that night. I've never seen so many hands, <laughs> <laughs> and he's just kind of like going, "Oh, oh gosh, oh boy, Did I do that. Oh my, <laughs> oh boy." Well, and at one point in the film, she proposes to him. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it, I, mean, I know it's a playful kind of zinger, but 
you know, and then 30 seconds later, okay, the deal's off the table. You waited too long, Captain. Yeah. No, oh, no, no. It wasn't he waited too long. He, She said, yeah, I'd consider it if you'd stop taking charge of everything. And then he's telling people, okay, come on, move over here. It's like, sorry, Captain, lost that opportunity. There you go. You know, <laughs> I mean, she was, she was brilliant in this. I wish she had done more films. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, she passed away at the age of 55. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have the opportunity to appear in many other films. And I believe this is the only genre film she did. This was her first feature, wasn't it? I think so. Wow. Yeah. She owns the camera. She does. She really does. Kind of interesting point with Kenneth Toby, though. You know, if you if you remember about four years later in 55, he was in uh, It Came From Beneath the Sea, the Ray Harryhausen octopus movie. Yes. And his co-star there is another very forceful woman, not to the same degree as Nikki was. But the female marine biologist is going to this symposium somewhere and Kenneth Toby and she get a little bit flirty, kind of romantic. And he's stunned that she's still going in that movie. So he's kind of became in four years the go-to guy for being on screen with these really strong female characters in genre films. And and he comes across real well doing it. He is so enjoyable to watch in this. Yeah. He has his moments where he's vulnerable, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to his interactions with Margaret Sheridan as Nikki. But he's also somebody that I could totally buy, Mm -hmm. that everybody rallies around. Yeah, and he's totally believable as a leader. Exactly. And I love that, you know, one of the monster kids who's made good, Joe Dante, Mm -hmm. put him in a number of his films. Oh, yeah. You know, he appeared in Gremlins 2. He appeared in Inner Space. So, you know, I love that. He continued to get some work, you know, down the line. Uh, unfortunately, he's no longer with us either. And his last film, I believe, was something called The Naked Monster. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. <laughs> so The Naked Monster is directed by Ted Newsom, and it's pretty much a love letter to these types of movies. Oh, really? Kenneth Toby's in that movie. Uh, John Agar's in the movie. Bob Burns, Forrest J. Ackerman's in the movie. Robert Clark. You know, a lot of these guys who were in these films – or are associated with mm-hmm. the Monster Kid movement, like Burns or Ackerman. Uh, Paul Marcos in the film from Plan 9 from Outer Space and Ed Wood stuff. Oh, wow. And then there's some you know modern folks as well. It was done in, what, 2000? The Naked Monster had two different releases, but like Brink Stevens is also in the movie, as, as is Linnea Quigley. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see them interacting with people like... Agar. Yeah, no kidding. Or, you know, in a movie with Les Tremaine. And, in fact, in The Naked Monster, Kenneth Toby plays a character named Colonel Patrick Hendry. Oh, great. Uh, John Agar plays Cleet Ferguson, which was his name in Revenge of the Creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a little budget and a little campy in spots, but... Well, no, I've, I've written that it down. It's on my 2C list, which just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, you know, for when you run out of other movies so oh, much, yeah. because, you know, we're almost out. Yeah, we are. They're They're just... Not enough to go around. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. See, I thought that when I launched Monster Kid Radio, I'd be like, you know, it's not that I'm going to run out of movies, but it's not like they're making any more. You know, these monster movies, these classic monster movies, people like Mim or Joshua Kennedy aside. Mm -hmm. It's not like they're making new monster movies. So, you know, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be able to look at my pool of movies and say, this is what I'm going to cover. No, I'm always finding new stuff. Like, oh, I never saw that. Yeah. Oh, I kept meaning to watch that one, you know, yeah. or rewatch it as, as in the case of this one. Yeah, and it, this is one of those movies that I just don't understand why it hasn't been released on a really extra feature package. The one I've got is just bare bones. There's a trailer and that's it. I know there's a, a John Carpenter commentary track out there somewhere. Oh, really? I haven't seen it, so I don't or, or heard it, I guess. So I don't know what's up with that. And I, th- I could have swore I saw that this had a Blu-ray release somewhere overseas. Okay, but I don't know for sure. I haven't been able to re-find it. Huh? That could be because I've never seen a good release in the states. I wouldn't imagine it'd be too tough because the transfer that we have on video or DVD isn't bad. Mm-hmm. It's not bad at all. I imagine it'll look amazing on blue. I know. I know. And, and I mean, this is such a classic iconic film that you would think there would be no problems with people wanting to talk about it. Like John Carpenter doing a, doing commentary would be awesome. Or get something like Joe Dante or something like that. Yeah. For some reason, I guess, uh, I don't know why you would think that 
if they were going to do it, they would have done it when the prequel, the thing came out. Right. Apparently not. Yeah. That would have been the time to do it. I think Mm -hmm. kind of strike while it's in the pop culture a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I could be wrong about it being on blue. I mean, I might be mixing it up with another movie, but if it's not on blue, man, it needs to be. Yeah, it does. It does. It needs, it needs a better release than, than what it's been given. And I agree with you. It's not a problem with the transfer of the film. I mean, it looks beautiful on DVD, but it deserves to have a commentary track. It deserves to have people talking about it because it is so important. It's got Howard Hawks's hands all over it. And Howard Hawks was a master filmmaker, not really known for a lot of genre work, probably most known for his Westerns. Oh, yeah working with people like John Wayne, that sort of thing. And, and he's a master. Listeners, if you haven't watched many Howard Hawks films, even though they're not monster movies, I mean, they're really good. Oh, yeah. And his hands are all over this, even though he's not credited as the director. He's credited as the producer. The director was a guy by the name of Christian Nyby. And depending on who you talk to, this might have been a poltergeist kind of situation where on paper it's directed by one guy, but really... It might have been somebody else who happened to be on set a lot. Yeah, there's two camps that I've found. Some of the actors say, yeah, Hawks was doing everything. Mm-hmm. And others say, well, you know, Christian was setting up the shots and all that, but he was over-talking to Hawks all the time. Right. Considering this is just like, this just feels like a Howard Hawks film. I think you're talking about Poltergeist in the same, you know, in the same way, because even though Toby Hooper directed the film, it really feels like a Steven Spielberg movie. Exactly. You know, and that's the same thing with this. Even though someone else's name is on it, it really feels like a Howard Hawks film. It really does. I mean, you've got the isolated location. You've got the characters interplaying with each other the way they are. You know, we've talked a little bit about a couple of the standout cast members. We should probably mention a few others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, granted, it is Captain Henry in charge, and Nikki steals our attention every time she's on screen. Mm-hmm. But Dr. Carrington, I really liked, played by Robert Cornthwaite. Mm-hmm. What an interesting foil. I mean, you can tell the moment he's on screen, the first time you meet him, this guy's going to be trouble, and it's not just because of his facial hair. This, You know, there's something about this guy that's going to be trouble. Mm-hmm. He was born here in Oregon. He was born in St. Helens. Oh, really? Let's appear in that movie, The Naked Monster, that I mentioned as well. He also appeared in The War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. So he's got a little bit of genre credit in him. Uh, he continued to work up until uh, the mid-90s. He passed in the mid-2000s. What I like about his character is his character is the extreme scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, the one who believes that learning is more important than anything else there's the line where he says we should be willing to die to learn for knowledge for knowledge mm-hmm. for the for the knowledge this thing has and i mean he does for the, for the human brain for the brain of humanity i think it's something along those lines yeah. yeah and and he does sabotage things for a while <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's he's but the nice thing is first of all the actor does not play him like a villain he doesn't play him like a villain but he does play him slightly on a different frequency than everybody else. So you know there's going to be some butting mm-hmm. of heads at some point, but it's not so obvious that it's overly telegraphed. Right. And not only that, at the end of the movie, no one really makes him the villain either. You know, when Scotty's talking to the reporters over the radio, he says Dr. Carrington is unable to come to the mic due to wounds he received in the battle. So even though this guy did everything he could to keep the creature alive, you know, sabotage, you know, everybody else's plans to kill it, they still don't make him the bad guy. It's just like, yeah, he's a little out there, but, you know, he's, he, he was doing what he believed was right. Yeah, no, and I love that. And again, I think that kind of goes to the relationships these people all had, too. Even though his frequency is a little, like I said, I felt like his frequency is a little off from everybody else. You still get the impression that they're all still friends, Comrades, you know, they're in a stressful situation, so sure, one of them's probably going to crack here or there. Yeah. But they still have a little bit of respect for each other, even at the end. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, and, and it was nice. In later movies, the scientists always got demonized pretty much. You know, they were the bad guys. And they always end up having to, you know, pay for what they brought into the world. You know, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is Tarantula. You know, I mean, the, the scientist mm-hmm. who creates the giant bug, you know, dies because of it. You know, because that was bad. Um, but this guy 
does stand up for his principles. I mean, he runs up to the thing and tries to convince it not to kill anyone. He's like, you're smarter than we are. We can learn from each other. You know, we can set aside our differences and learn from each other and then gets swatted away like a fly for his efforts, you know, but still he's, he stands behind his principle. You know, he goes up there willing to die to try and convince the thing to not kill anyone. And, and so they could learn from each other, which was pretty nice. Yep. Uh, I like the characterization a lot. And I think you're right. When you look at some of these movies, it's really easy to kind of paint the scientist in the mm-hmm. demonized role, the mad scientist role, somebody who's going to pay for messing with things that one should not mess with when it comes to Mother Nature. But mm-hmm. in, in this one, the scientist feels like a real guy just trying to do his job. And he starts stripping away some of the outer layers. Yeah. And then, yeah, we have to die for knowledge. Well, not Captain Henry has anything to say about it, but yeah. (laughs) Even some of the other scientists in the post agree with Captain Henry. You know, there's, there is discussion back and forth. Dr. Carrington saying, you know, we have to, you know, we can learn from this creature. And one of the other scientists says, well, you know, we don't know why this creature's here. Maybe it's here to invade. Maybe it's here to conquer. We can't take that chance. At this point, you know, the thing lives off of blood, obviously has no problem killing people for it. And, uh, you know, I, I think he's not here on the best terms. No, you know, not, not that you can hold it against somebody. He didn't really look friendly. And then his, mm-hmm. his actions. We mentioned the reporter earlier, too. I want to talk about the reporter because, again, a lot of times in some of these monster movies, especially as you get later on into the 60s and maybe even the 70s or 80s, I mean, you you see the reporter, the journalist being the instigator, wanting to know more and causing trouble. This guy, Scotty, played by Douglas Spencer. Can I send my story out yet? Can I take a picture? Yeah. Out? You know, he's very respectful. He's always asking, you know, can I do it? He does kind of jab at Captain Henry a little bit. They use the thermite to try and, you know, get the uh, ship out of the ice. It blows up. There's a scene later on where um, Henry's superiors are saying, um, you know, oh, yeah, go ahead. Use thermite. And Scotty comes out and says something. Oh, well, that puts you off the hook. You know, he's <laughs> kind of needling, but he's respectful. It's the kind of needling that I feel like you get between people who know each other, yeah, live with each know. other, have a friendship. You know, they're, they're, they're busting each other's, you know, they're busting Someone on each other. It feels like something someone would do, you know? It's like, yeah, I'm going to bust your chops a little bit here. Mm-hmm. The actor who played him was really good, I thought. Oh, he's great. After they try to set the thing on fire, they're going, so, Scotty, did you get your picture? Nah, fell over a bunk, probably got a shot on my feet. He just seemed natural, like mm-hmm. someone who would be in that sort of situation and just not back down on what he, you know, on, on getting the story, but, you know, be respectful enough to go, well, these guys got a job to do and that's keeping me and everybody else alive. Let them go. Right. He really could have pointed Carrington as the bad guy and all this, but nope. That makes him one of the, I mean, he endeared him to me a little bit more. Even though it's the end of the movie. I'm like, oh yeah. 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 He is. He he's gets not, it. He's one of he's them. He's not going to make anybody out you know? to be the bad guy. Everybody was just no. doing what they thought was right. Carrington was just a little bit too heavy on the let's save the creature side. So Douglas Spencer also appeared in This Island Earth, and I believe that might have been his mm-hmm. only other real big genre role, although his last credited role was a TV episode of The Twilight Zone in which he played a Martian. So how's that for a little bit of irony, maybe? Twilight Zone, the original or the or uh, from the 60s? He goes from uh, reporting on the alien to being the alien. There you mm-hmm. go. Yeah, like that. Now, during all the back and forth, the dialogue, there was one voice that stood out, and I didn't remember this from before, and I didn't realize this, but I'm listening to it, and I'm thinking, that, that guy's voice sounds familiar. I look at it, and it's like, hey, that's Paul Freese. Paul Freese is in this movie. He's got a, a very small part. Paul Freese is a well-known voice actor. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know he was in the movie. Yeah. So Paul Freese is in that. You know, he does a lot of voice work. He mm-hmm. did uh, Boris Badenov in the Bullwinkle TV show. You know, he just did a lot. And he did a few genre pictures. He actually appears as a featured person in front of the camera a few times in a few movies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, he's in that as well. And it's like, ah, that's, 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 that's Paul Freese. I know that voice. What part is he? He's one of the soldiers. Oh, very, very small part. I'm trying to think of the scene. Is it in before they go out to the uh, Arctic post? I think so. It's pretty early in the movie when I saw him. Okay. God Darn, me. I'll have to go back and double check, but I think it's pretty early. Well, now I have to go back and watch this movie again and find Paul Freeze. <laughs> Darn. Oh. 
shoots. <laughs> I know you've got that. Well, like we said, we're almost out of movies to watch, so we'll just sort of go back and rewatch. Yeah, it. no, no, no. I, I, yeah, might as well watch it two or three more times. No problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to talk about the music, but is there anybody else in the cast you want to comment on? No, I wanted to get to the music too. Oh God. Oh, brilliant soundtrack. Oh, Dimitri Tiomkin, fantastic score. Mm-hmm. So good. So again, we've been using the word iconic a lot describing this movie, but I think it's warranted. The film score from this. Wow. I know the theme by heart. If I lived in a perfect world and elevator music occasionally carried um, <laughs> monster soundtracks and that came up, I'd know what it was from. Wouldn't it be a great world, though, if, if elevator music would do monster soundtracks? Oh, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. Now I want to figure out a way to hack elevators so I can... I know, <laughs> it's, it's got me thinking, too. It's like, huh, let's see, let's let's put Godzilla in that soundtrack mixer. Let's put the thing from another world in it. Yeah, I would put it right up there with Godzilla. I would put it right up there with Creature. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would put it right up there with uh, Swan Lake from Dracula and the Mummy. It mm-hmm. is such an iconic piece of film score music that didn't come from the studio known for doing monster movies. It's not a universal film. It's not a universal score. No. But it belongs right in there in the mix. It's really interesting, you know, the scene on the ice where they start trying to figure out the shape of the sh- the vehicle underneath the ice. Oh, which is such a, a chilling scene, no pun intended. When they finally get the, the shape, mm-hmm. there's two beats where the music just stops, and it's dead silence mm-hmm. as everybody's looking at each other, and then it kicks back in. It works so well. It just was a beautiful moment of the, of, of the composer just going, okay, 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 stop, let it sink in. Get back. Exactly. Back. It, it worked beautifully. Basically, through the music, it conveyed everybody's amazement that, wow, we found a flying saucer. I, I thought that was a beautiful moment. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film. When oh, we're yeah. all walking around and determining the shape of this thing. And, of course, having watched the movie before, even though it had been a while, I knew that they're all going to freak out. It's a flying saucer. But the potential cheesiness of that moment is underscored by the music. So if you're questioning it at all, oh, it's a flying saucer. Of course it is. Listen to the soundtrack. So <laughs> It could have been a cheesy moment, but even everybody played it straight. It was that sense of, we finally found one. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't the, oh my gosh, you know, it's a flying saucer. Yay. It was like they knew about flying saucers. Mm-hmm. Being in the Air Force, there's people have been, you know, reporting flying saucers. They even talk about it on the flight back. But it's just that sense of discovery and s- sense of shock that they've actually come across one. It, it felt like whatever, if, if there was a soundtrack in my life and I came across a flying saucer, that's the moment I won. <laughs> that soundtrack moment, because that just would be perfect. It's perfect. It is perfect. It really is perfect. Uh, the score itself, I- I'm going to call it a perfect film score altogether. Oh, yeah. From the opening credits. Well, and there's not really an opening credit. There's like a title card, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And then just throughout the entire film, it is just so good. No wonder he won four Oscars over his lifetime. Oh, yeah. You know? And, and again, he didn't do a lot. Of, a lot of these guys didn't do a lot of genre work. A few pieces of his music turned up in some monster movies here and there, but... I think he's mostly known for like war and uh, westerns. Mm-hmm. D- did some Hitchcock. Oh, really? But, but overall, I mean, he's not a genre guy. But man, he hit those genre notes so well. You kind of have to wonder, since so many of these, the people behind the camera, even some of the actors, were not known for being in a genre film. If that's what made it so good, because they didn't play it as a genre film. Yeah, I think the tendency sometimes when you're making a monster movie, it's like, oh, it's a monster movie, whatever. And yeah. you can see that. There are a lot of movies from this era that are like that. You know, there's a little bit of money thrown at them, not much. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a rushed job. This felt like a prestige picture. And I'm sure Hawks had a lot to do with it. Yeah, I'm thinking it's it's just because they don't do the genre thing. They didn't play it like a genre thing. They weren't used to reacting to the monster. Yeah, it came off as being played straight. This could have easily been a war movie. This could have easily been a Western. And a lot of that is because of Hawks, but I also think it's just the structure of the film and how everybody played it. You know, I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to say it is a Western. I'm going to say it does have that 
a group of people against the frontier kind of vibe. Yes, it does. You know, I mean, when you say Western, I mean, obviously, I think cowboys, you know, the, the desert, whatever. But the sensibility of the really good Westerns is, is in this film. And again, that's Hawks, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But it's, it still holds up really well. No wonder. I mean, Carpenter, who cites this as one of his most influential films, as is a number of other filmmakers. But Carpenter's just been remaking the Western pretty much for years. Oh, yeah. You know, whether he's setting it on Mars or he's setting it in a police station, you know, he's been remaking Westerns, basically. And I could see why when a movie like this influences him so much. Mm -hmm. It feels like it could easily have just been a Western. It works so well because of that, you know, because it's not, ooh, here comes the scary monster. It's like, no, here comes the menace. Exactly. It just happens to be a monster. It just happens to be a monster played by a guy known for playing a cowboy. Yeah. There's our Western again. Yeah. James Arness, who I guess didn't really look fondly back on his experience with this film. No. No, he d- he did not. I, mean, I, ca- I guess I kind of can see why, but, you know, because, I mean, he didn't really have a whole lot to do. No, that's true. He was pretty much told to put on the makeup and look scary. Break through a door, throw a few things around, hit somebody, but that's it. And he's not really in the film very much. No, no. And I can only imagine the effort to get into the makeup and then just to have yourself on film very, very infrequently just kind of was uh, really <laughs> you know you know the nice thing is he went on to other things sure long-running tv show matt Dillon and gunsmoke mm-hmm. so he had a good good run and mclean you know in mclean's law he was detective mclean on this so he, had, he headlined a tv show for a long time that's true lots of tv work so you know thank you for playing the thing and i'm glad you enjoyed playing cowboy later yeah yeah but you were great as the thing. I mean, and he really was. I mean, that, he was a big guy, and he looked. <laughs> yeah, at, he was. He looked it in that film. It's he just busts through the door, and you. He's just like filling it, and, mm-hmm. and and it's not just his size; it's just his presence. He just looks like, yeah, I'm here to rip your heads off. If it wasn't an alien from another world, it could have just been a really angry guy played by James Arness. The way he plays him. You're terrified of him. Set aside the fact that he's here to consume our blood and who knows what. There's a big dude coming at us. He's angry. He's got this menace. Oh, when he has to be an alien. You know, it's just. He makes you scared. Mm -hmm. The first time you see him on screen, when they open up the door and he's standing right there. It's a nice little jump moment. Yeah. And it's not even telegraphed. You know, it's just, well, we're looking around. Let's open this door. See what's behind it. Oh, crap. And I had that moment. My yeah. head, I was like, whoa. Because yeah, I've been so much so long. His arm caught and pulls it through the door and rips apart the door frame. Mm-hmm. Just the size difference. You know, he's looking down on everybody there, and you know they're looking up at this guy going, oh, oh man, we're in trouble. Man, how fantastic is this film? Oh, Just yeah. overall, this, I could talk about this movie for hours, I think. I, I could too. And, and there's one, one more thing I, I do need to mention. Okay. That's, Still gives me chills watching this movie every single time. It's their use of the Geiger counter when they're doing the, well, it's a count up because the level's going up, you know, you're just waiting. Here it comes, you know, and, and, oh, I don't know why it just that those two scenes with the Geiger counter and the count up always get to me, always just send chills down my spine. Yes. Well, it's, it's well done. And it's, again, you can see how this film influenced other people because you've got the escape from New York bit where he's following the tracker. You've got aliens where mm-hmm. you've got the beep, 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 you know, and then they get closer and louder and louder and more. It's terrifying. It's suspenseful. It's just a sound effect, guys, but it's so unnerving and suspenseful. Yes, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those movies that, yeah, I could talk about for hours and, I would be gushing all the time. I, well, it's easy to gush. I don't think there's anything to really dislike about this movie, and I understand why it's number two for you. Yeah. And yeah. I can see how it battles with Creature. I really could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I still have a soft spot for the Gilman. As I was saying, I think what constantly notches up the Creature for me is the Creature costume. The the thing, I mean, it's it's mostly thanks to our nest that it's scary. And so alien and so different. You know, the creature just looks different. Yeah, no, I agree. The creature, you can see, I mean, you can see him. 
they, they don't hide them. You can see yeah. them and you see the artistry on display. The monster makeup in the thing from another world probably isn't the best. I have read a few things where they're just like, ah, put a Frankenstein hat on him. Yeah, let's just do that. You yeah. know? Oh, the, hey, thorns, thorns on his hand. Yeah, he's yeah. a plant. Let's do that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which I think is fine and it works because that's not the point. Right. The point is the menace, the, the thing lurking in the shadows or the thing that came out of the skies. And that's the other thing, you know, as we kind of wind down here, I love the ending. I love Scotty giving his report and mm-hmm. wanting to talk to all the newsmen. Oh yeah. And, and he gives us that iconic phrase. Keep watching the skies. That is a classic ending. I mean, there's a reason why that line became the name of an incredible book about monster movies from this era. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why whenever I order pizza online in the special notes, I put keep watching the skies because I'm a big dork. I, <laughs> you know, I, I love that whenever I order something from Monster Bash magazine, I put that in the, the special order as well. And they usually write back, we always do. So. <laughs> You know, I mean, there's a reason why that's a, or an iconic line. Oh, yeah. It it works so well. Yeah, we've killed this one. Mm-hmm. But there's got to be more out there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it wasn't an isolated incident. It's just that final last little chill. Mm-hmm. We got to keep on guard because there's more coming. When we did our first episode, do you remember what I put for my number two and three? Um, I know Creature, and I think Black Scorpion was in there. I think, uh, yeah, I think that was, I don't remember. I don't remember either, but I could easily see this nosing itself into my number three spot. It's one of those movies that you just can't watch too many times. I wonder who has the rights for it, because, man, this would be fun to license and show to theater somewhere. Oh, oh, yes. I mean, I know RKO had it for a while, but RKO, you know, a lot of their catalog ended up elsewhere, so I wonder. Man, that would be great to see this on the big screen. It would be, and then to drop the temperature in the theater as the movie's going. Oh, yeah. They get to the scene where Nikki notices, you know, it's getting colder because she can see her breath. Uh-huh. Everybody in the theater starts doing that, too. Oh, how? Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah, you can tell we're kind of big geeks here. Yeah, yeah. But well, that's okay. You're, you're putting down, uh, keep watching the skies on, you know, <laughs> special instructions. I'm thinking about how to get elevator music to play monster movie soundtracks. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah. No, if I ever, yeah. <laughs> well, we just got to win the Powerball the next time it's that high, and then we can afford to buy our own elevator and put in our own music. Exactly. Build a theater specifically for the thing from another world. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Chris, man, this this one's good. I'm sorry it took us so long, both to Chris and to the listeners. I'm sorry it took so long to come to this film. The important thing is we got to it. It is a movie that really deserves to be on Monster Kid Radio, because it's such an influential monster film. It's iconic. It's influential. The waves that it made can still be felt today with today's filmmakers. Oh, yeah. If you want to see a good, isolated monster movie, a movie in an isolated setting, this is it. I mean, you can have your alien. You can have your, you know, the thing from Carpenter. But this one, I think this one practically made the mold. To influence people like Carpenter, like Joe Dante, you know, in in such a way... You can look at Carpenter's work and see this movie all throughout it, even mm-hmm. even in the ones that weren't his best. You know, you could still see. <laughs> well, I did kind of mention Ghost of Mars, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, you know, that's not his best, but still, you you can tell he's working on that same theme: the isolation, mm-hmm. the menace. Although uh, it's not really a good Carpenter film, is it? You know, not compared to some of his other work, but still. Still. And I have a copy of it in my collection (laughs) because it is kind of goofy fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But but I think I'd go back and watch this one again, though, before I watch Ghost of Mars. Just saying. Oh, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I mean, like I said, the, the fact that, you know, this has influenced so many filmmakers. The fact that, you know, I mean... You go online and start looking, Google thing from another world, 1951, and there are people are left and right are reviewing it. It's one of those movies that if you haven't seen it, get yourself a copy. Do yourself a favor. You really do need to see it. The story's not incredibly deep, but the character interaction, the relationships, the menace, the suspense, the soundtrack, that makes it deep. That makes it so enjoyable and it gets your hooks in you. Gets its Mm -hmm. hooks in you. Yeah. 
Hopefully we didn't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it. Although, you know, I really don't know if too many people, too many monster kids who probably haven't seen it. Right. Well, Chris, I'm sure we're going to have you on the show again in the future. But if people need a fix beforehand, before we have you back on the show, Shadow Over Portland. Shadow Over Portland dot blogspot.com you put out fairly regular content just letting people know about what's going on in the horror field the horror genre in the entire pacific northwest which is awesome until i go and see something really really cool and i'm like oh it's in seattle yeah it's in seattle <laughs> or oh my gosh it's up in bellingham i actually i think they showed this movie earlier in the month up in bellingham nice on the big screen oh wow so it is out there and, oh, I still wanted to be in Bellingham that day. Yeah, no kidding, right? Shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. There is a link to this from our website at monsterkidradio.net. I consider Chris one of the founding members of this podcast, so you're always welcome back, and you're always welcome to plug whatever you want. <laughs> well, thank you, and it's always great to be on Monster Kid Radio talking about classics and not-so-classic monster movies. It's <laughs> I, I can't think of a better way to spend a rainy Portland Saturday. I, I can think of a better way. I want to go watch the movie again. Okay, that, that would be that better. Slightly, but, you know, why don't we meet up somewhere and we'll watch the movie together? How about that? Okay, sounds good. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Shadowoverportland.blogspot.com is where you're going to find Chris. Like I said earlier, the link to the Shadow Over Portland is featured prominently over at monsterkidradio.net. I meant what I said. Without Chris, Monster Kid Radio wouldn't be where it is today so cool to have him back on the show, and I've got some things in the works. I probably am going to have him back here sooner rather than later, although I haven't really talked to him about that. So, Chris, if you're listening, I'm going to have you on back sooner rather than later, okay? I have to say I'm still kind of blown away by discovering that Bill Neff, an instructor that I had at Montana State University Film School, appeared in this film somewhere, as well as a couple of other classic science fiction films. I think I knew that he did some Disney work at one point. Again, uncredited stuff, extra type work, that sort of thing. But man, if I could go back in time and just shake that younger Derek and say, you know, pay attention to Bill Neff's class, ask him about these monster movies. Okay, actually, I don't know if my life would be any different. There might be a reason why I didn't know, and he didn't talk about it too much in class. I know that he was focusing on his work as a documentary filmmaker as well as being a professor at MSU. But still, I guess the lesson to take away here is just don't take these kinds of things for granted. Um, respect your elders. Uh, don't drop out of film school. Don't set yourself on fire. I, I don't know. There's a lesson here. I don't know what it is, but if I figure it out, I'll talk about it on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. I say there are things better left unsolved. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no man's land? Impossible, unbelievable, fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. Yes, it could happen. For various authorities believe that buried somewhere under the polar ice cap, in a state of suspended animation, are the awesome creatures, the leviathans that roamed the earth at the dawn of time. And under certain conditions, a nuclear explosion could free one from his icy tomb. Then, guided by instinct, the beast would come back, back to the caverns of the deepest Atlantic where it was spawned. An armored giant wreaking his prehistoric fury on modern man and his puny machines. Cities would be terrorized by the cruel intruder from the past. Populations crazed and panicked with fear by its destructive force. Granite and steel would crumble. Soldiers and their weapons would be powerless before the onslaught of the beast. The beast. The beast. The beast from 20,000 fathoms. Herald Square, 34th Street. Broadway. Every section of the city is guarded. No one knows where the monster will strike next. Another one, Colonel? No. You know what the radioactive isotope is? No, but if it can be loaded, I can fire it. I'll load it. Just remember one thing. This is the only isotope of its kind this side of Oak Ridge, so you can't miss.
quiver and quake when you hear the unearthly, uncanny sound that signals hideous death, the sound of horror. Now look here. There's a treasure worth a million dollars in that cave, and no myth is going to stop us from getting it. I've spent years trying to find this treasure, and now that we're at the end of the rainbow, nothing is going to stop us. Nothing that's human. In the ancient caves of Greece, they seek a fortune and release a destructive force beyond control. Close up all the windows and bolt the doors. blood-curdling, inhuman sound of horror. Okay, speaking of future episodes of Monster Kid Radio, why don't we talk about what's coming up next week? The Thing from Another World is such a good movie that when I put out the call for nominees for what I called the Monster Rally Retro Awards, this movie got a lot of love from you listeners, and I want to see if it continued to get love from the listeners when we finally announced the winners of the 2015 Monster Rally Retro Awards, also known as the Rallies. Yeah, okay, so uh, last year, around award season, maybe a little bit afterwards, I put out the call. I put out a ballot and asked listeners to vote for their favorite actors, actresses, movies from the years 1931, 41, and 51. And it probably goes without saying monster movies from those years. And I've been sitting on those results forever. Well, we're finally going to get to them next week in episode 254. So come back for that. If you need more Monster Kid Radio goodness before that episode, though, again, Monster Kid Radio is where you're going to find links to everything you need to know about the podcast between episodes. You're going to find links to our Facebook group, links to every single song that's appeared here on the show as well as ways to get to the websites of the bands that have given us permission to play their music so you can go support them. And, you know, if the band's on Bandcamp, their music is incredibly affordable, and they're independent artists, so it doesn't hurt to support them. Also on our website, we have our contact information, and you can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. If you are paying real close attention, you might see that I took something off the website this week. Not that I've updated it in forever, but Monster Kid Radio used to have a live 365 channel where you could go to listen to sounds and songs from classic monster movies. Well, Live 365 is no more. They pulled the plug, changes in their licensing agreement with the different license holders here in the U.S. regarding music and whether or not you could actually stream the music legally. That changed, and then Live 365 also lost a number of sponsors, so they pulled the plug. So there is no longer a Monster Kid Radio Live 365 channel. Again, like I said, I hadn't updated it in quite some time, but once or twice a month, I'd still get an email saying, somebody likes the station, because somebody gave it a thumbs up or whatever it is that Live 365 did. If you were one of those people, thanks. I didn't really get anything out of the deal. I didn't get any kickbacks or make any money or whatever. I just liked sharing some of this music with you guys and gals because it's the kind of music that I listen to all day long. It's the kind of music that I would pipe into an elevator if I could figure out how to hack the music that an elevator plays. And you know, now that I think about it, I don't think I've actually heard music in an elevator in years. Now, either way, I love the music. I love being able to share it with people. So hope you enjoyed it. In the future, I might do something else down the line if we can find another very affordable service for something like that. Might bring some people on board to help out with that because, well, part of the reason why things like that didn't get a lot of attention is this podcast takes a lot of time and energy and I love it, but it sometimes makes it difficult to work on some of the peripheral projects like Patreon. So this month, if you are a supporter of Monster Kid Radio through Patreon, expect a message from me because we have to make some things right and y'all got some things coming. Some Monster Kid Radio care packages 
And we're going to restructure the Patreon to streamline things just a little bit more. The Monster Alley Checkpoint e-newsletter will be coming back, except we're changing the name. It's going to be the Monster Kid Radio Gazette. This is an e-newsletter where you're going to get bonus information about the podcast as well as monster movies in general, just being a monster kid. I've got some new artwork coming that will be featured in the Gazette. For now, head over to monsterkidradio.net and, and over on the right, underneath the Rondo Award statue, you can put in your email address, hit subscribe, and you'll get on that list. I think that brings us to the end. All the administrivia that I wanted to get through has been gotten through, so let's wrap up. Remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song D. Trauriga Grammel. That belongs to the band Baloo and D. Surf Grumman. It is from their album Los Chicarones del Surf. Now, you can find them over at Bandcamp by going to greencookierecords.bandcamp.com. That's going to get you to the Green Cookie Records page, and you're going to see a number of surf albums on there, including this album. You can also follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, or you can go straight to the band's website. It's www.surfgramm.com. E-L-N hyphen S-A-N dot org. Once you find them, let them know that you heard them here first on Monster Kid Radio. Talk to you next week when we announce the winners of the 2015 Monster Rally Retro Awards. It's time to go through the rallies. Talk to you then. say there are things better left unsolved. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no man's land?